Good morning, New Hope. It is good to see you. You know what, friends? I've forgotten what it's like having three under four in a household. You know the old cartoons where you see a house that's kind of there and the sides are going boom, boom, boom and the roof's coming off and oh man, and if you can get down the hall without breaking your neck on toys, you've done well. And, but it's been great. It's been a great pleasure to have Tim and Helen with us for the last couple of weeks. Folks, I just want to pick up on the theme and I'm going to just b- briefly read a scripture. And then I'm going to introduce our guest speakers today. If you've got your Bibles, I would encourage you, normally I would have these on the screen. Today, I just dragged this up this morning. It's a well-known verse, but I want you to listen to this as if it was the very first time you'd ever heard this. Fresh eyes, fresh ears. Picking it up, Matthew 25, verse 34. Bless the reading of your word, Lord, to our hearts. May your spirit move us forward to be more like your son, Jesus. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. That's going to be good. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you kindly invited me in. I needed clothes. Because it was naked and cold. And you, you, you gave me some clothes. You clothed me. I was sick. And you looked after me. I was in prison. And you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry? I don't recall feeding you or seeing you thirsty or giving you something to drink. When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth. What? Ever, you did for one of the least of these brothers. You did it for me. Now I guess today we'll share some stories that will give you a glimpse into the hearts and lives of some of the least of these. These are the precious in the in the eyes and in the heart of the Lord Jesus. So, with that thought in mind, it is my great pleasure to introduce to you Tim and Helen Manson, my daughter and son-in-law. Come on up, guys. Let's give them a hand. (laughs) 
Tim and Helen were members of New Hope for many years and they now uh, live in Uganda. They've been there for the last four and a half years on the, on the ground working on different projects and different organisations. Um, Helen is a freelance humanitarian photographer and storyteller. That's quite a mouthful. And those words are exact. A humanitarian freelance photographer storyteller. And Tim works as a country director for Tutapona and has just completed his Master's in International Development. They'll be sharing with us what some of the good works God's been doing through their lives and ministries. So again, would you please warmly welcome them with a warm New Hope welcome. Thank you, Ian, and um, New Hope Church for, for welcoming Helen and I. It's a, it's a real privilege to be able to join you guys this morning. Um, yeah, we're, we're very grateful to be able to come and share. We actually, we leave New Zealand shores tomorrow, um, so we're only here for another day, and it's a, it's a great opportunity to come and connect with the church here again. Um, I actually wanted to, so I, the, the passage that um, Ian just read um, does tie in really, really well to what we're talking about. Um, there's another passage as well that I have that's very, in my opinion, very connected to um, the story that he read. And I'd like to start by just reading that this morning. Um, we're not actually, in the, the conventional sense of the word, not really preaching this morning. But um, the, the ideas and the, the stories and the, some of the, the things that we've been up to that we're going to be sharing about, I think are in some ways linked to this passage that I'm about to read. Um, so Chris, if you, yes, you've got it up there. Well done. One step ahead. Um, the passage is from Luke 10, 25 through 37, and I've only got a few excerpts from the passage behind me. It says this. It says, on one occasion... An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from, Jericho, from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Which of these three, Jesus asked, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Um, I've actually been asked to preach a message on um, this passage a couple of weeks after we get back to Uganda. Um, and I'm not doing that again this morning, but I've been looking at this passage a lot over the last few months, trying to sort of um, apply it and, and think about what it might mean for me. And as Helen and I share a little bit about the work that we've been up to, I would encourage you guys maybe to reflect also on this passage this morning and perhaps think about what might God be saying to you through this passage. And, and as you start out your, your new year, get into 2019, which is now well underway, I believe, 
um, I would really encourage you to think, who are those people around you that maybe God is calling you to um, notice, to have pity on, compassion on, and, and to do something in love? Um, I did want to, before I jump in, I did want to just point out one very quick thing. Did you notice in the scripture when Jesus is having this quite intriguing dialogue with this man, um, how he turns the man's question around? I'm not sure if you picked that up, but the man had asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, right? I think he was kind of trying to ask, who am I required to help? Who do I need to? What's, what's the criteria here for who I need to show love to? Uh, and Jesus doesn't actually answer that directly, but instead he replies, who was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Quite a, quite a, a shift in thinking. And so the question that Helen and I um, are, are trying to think about as we go into our new year, and I'd encourage you guys to do the same, who do we get to be neighbors to in the context in which we live? We're going to kind of trade back and forth a little bit this morning. Helen's going to begin. She's going to talk a little bit about our adoption journey. Then I'm going to follow up and talk a bit about my work with Tutapona, uh, working with refugees in Uganda. Then Helen will talk about her work, um, which is quite different to what I do, uh, before we close out. So, Helen, come on up. So good morning, everybody. It's such a privilege to be here. Uh, my name's Helen, and as you know, this is Tim, and we've got three little kids, if we can go to our next slide. Um, right now, they're probably out the back, running around like a pack of wild animals, uh, with or without their clothes on, squatting on top of your church toilet seat and eating the food off the floor. You know, our kids have been living in Africa since the day they were born, so they cannot believe the soft roads in New Zealand or the fact that they're allowed to drink water straight from the tap or that there's a place called McDonald's with a real playground. And meanwhile, Tim and I just can't get over not having to lock our doors every time we get in the car, not having to turn on a hot water heater every time we want to have a shower and being able to eat all the cheese, all the cream, the yogurt, the sushi and seafood after hearts could ever wish for. You know, we used to attend New Hope Church for a number of years before we, before we relocated to Uganda back in 2014. And this morning we've been invited to share just for a few moments about what we've been up to over in Uganda. But first, I wanted to get really personal and testify to something incredible that God has done in the hopes that it encourages somebody today in the pursuit of the dreams God might have placed in your heart. So about 21 years ago, something happened that changed the course of my life forever. I was a Kiwi girl, and I was living in California with my three younger brothers and my parents. And my best friend, Natalie, was an only child, until one day, she wasn't. Overnight, and seemingly out of the blue, she was given two brothers in quick succession. That was my first exposure to the world of adoption, and it fascinated me. Um, over the years, it actually became more than a simple fascination. It became a real passion. And reflecting back, I think what I liked about it the most was the fact that my traditional view of family was blown right out of the water as I watched their family come to life before my very eyes. From there on out, I read books on adoption. I watched movies about it. And of course, I watched their family very closely. Around the same time, I started learning about the world we live in and the challenges people face in countries different to mine. We had people come and speak at my school and at our church about life was like for those living in developing countries. My heart was broken completely in two. My fate, it felt like, was sealed. And so the prayers began from the age of 12 that if 
God would see fit, I would get to adopt a child from one of those countries. Adoption was never, ever, ever, ever a second best option for me. It was always my first and preferred option. In fact, having a biological child was so far out of the realm of what I wanted to do with my life, it wasn't even funny. So fast forward to my first date with Tim over an Oreo milkshake from Denny's. <laughs> he was all class back then. <laughs> uh, he told me that if I wouldn't be willing to live in Africa, that was a deal breaker for him. First date material. So I said, well, if you wouldn't be willing to adopt, that's my deal breaker. And the weird thing is that, that the child I dreamed about adopting was always a boy. I thought about him most weeks for the next 21 years of my life. I'm 33 now. And I hired books from the library on adoption regularly. In faith, I actually bought clothes for this little boy for over two decades. I wished for him so badly. <laughs> I prayed for him so much, had his name doodled in every diary I'd owned. And if I had one wish as I blew up my candle on every birthday, it was that one day we would find each other in this great big world. See, I've always believed that we serve a God that sits up there in the heavens looking across the whole earth. He saw my heart, a heart I believe he gave me to adopt, and he saw not just one, but two children coming down the pipeline that for whatever reason wouldn't be able to stay with their biological families. Can you just quickly jump and I'll, I'll trade you out. Trauma and deep loss for those two children. And yet. and yet, he, God, is in the business of restoration and redemption. And what I've discovered is that this God is so extravagant that sometimes he'll send people from one side of the earth to the other for one another. He saw Tim and I with our hands up in the air, asking God that if a child ever needed a home, we'd be there in a heartbeat. And one day, that day came. Suffice to say that when hope entered our family, I, Helen, was confused because she was most certainly a girl. <laughs> a beautiful, wonderful, precious, adored baby girl nonetheless. But did I have it wrong? Did I hear incorrectly? Did I need to feminize the doodled name? Nothing made sense other than the fact that I knew this little girl was made for our family. Maybe the boy was supposed to be biological, I, I hypothesized. But 18 months later, our biological daughter, Eva, was born. Also, most certainly a girl. My prayers continued. So in April 2017, on our 10-year wedding anniversary, I asked Tim for permission to knock one last time. He set stipulations and off I went. August 31st, 2017 was a day I'll never forget because it was the day I met, I met my son, the boy I'd been praying and dreaming about for all those years. The, the wish I'd wished and the fulfillment of a dream decades in the making. It wasn't anything like I expected it to be. Driving there, we didn't know if they'd matched us with a boy or a girl. We didn't know the age or the background of the child. And so when he was um, carried through the door and, into our, and our two worlds collided, there was no drama, no fuss, no eureka moment. Just a little nudge in my heart as they read his file, and I took it all in. This was indeed him. Some of you may remember that mum and dad shared this special news with you um, shortly after that time. Fast forward two months ago and a judge in the High Court of Uganda looked me in the eye and said the three letters I've prayed for for most of my life. Yes. There are truly no words someone can say to explain what it feels like to be given the legal right to be a mother. Soon after that, our prayers became fervent for our son to be granted New Zealand citizenship and a New Zealand passport and the chance to take our son home for Christmas for the first time in two years. And without a doubt in my mind, thanks to the prayers that 
including many people in this room. Last Sunday, um, this is a little bit of a day, a few weeks ago, um, we left Uganda at 4.30 p.m. and began our long homeward journey. 60 hours later, thanks to three delayed flights and missed connections, we arrived home in New Zealand and were able to surprise our friends and family. This Sunday, we stand before you as a family of five New Zealand slash Ugandans, so deeply grateful to God for his incredible faithfulness. Yeah. <laughs> I think that deserves a clap. <laughs> Yeah, the, the journey that we've been on there um, uh, that Helen's um, written about so beautifully really has been an incredible one. It's an incredibly faith-building one for both of us. We've really been able to see um, God do amazing things. We, we sort of didn't get a chance to go into it in too much detail, but the third world justice system in which we were sort of navigating this process for both Hope and Maz um, is a really tricky, um, uncertain, unpredictable um, process. And, and that God helped us to get through that and that we're all sort of back here with New Zealand passports in hand is, is really quite miraculous. And we, we do want publicly to state that we're so grateful to God for um, finishing that work and, and, and helping us to, to get all that done. Um, and that, yeah, it's, it's actually such a relief to, to be able to now, we are going back to Uganda tomorrow, but it, it's now um, all that work is behind us. So, and, and finally on that topic, we, we're really grateful for the prayer support from this church. Thank you guys that have, um, that have been with us for the last five years, I guess, and praying, praying for us as we've gone through that adoption journey. Um, I'd love now to change gears a little bit and, and talk just briefly about some of the work that I've been involved with in, in Uganda. Um, for the past three years, I've been, I've been doing my current job. Um, I work currently as the, as the country director for an, uh, a smallish organization that, that is in Uganda based out of Uganda, and it, it does trauma rehabilitation for refugees, specifically refugees affected by war and conflict. Um, and my journey towards this, if you like, kind of ref referring back to the, the parable that I read um, at the start, my journey towards this, perhaps when I kind of first noticed someone by the side of the road, um, actually started when I was 12 years old. Um, I was, was a, the, the youngest son of a missionary couple. I actually, my sister is with us here as well, so she, she knows this well. Um, we were living in Cote d'Ivoire in West Africa, and I, I spent most of my primary school years across there. And when I was, yeah, when I was 12 years old, my mum uh, pulled me out of school for a, for a few weeks and, and took me on a holiday, an extremely memorable holiday. We, we actually flew across the continent of Africa to East Africa, um, and we landed in, in the capital city um, of Rwanda, which is a city called Kigali, and we drove across Rwanda to uh, another small town called Goma, which is in the Eastern uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, the reason we were going there is we had family who were also missionaries in, in that small town, and there were some cousins that I had that were the same age. So as a 12-year-old as a boy, this was an incredible experience. I remember um, landing in the sort of other side of Africa, it was much cooler than what I'd become used to. Um, beautiful scenery. There's this, uh, this lovely lake that goes between Rwanda and the DRC called Lake Kivu. And with my cousins, I can remember going for long swims in this lake, eating foods we hadn't had in West Africa for several years. Uh, had this amazing experience. And then we drove back through Rwanda, got on a plane, flew back to Cote d'Ivoire and, and sort of carried on, went back to school. Uh, it was only a, a few short weeks after that holiday experience that I'd had that I was walking through the kind of school lobby uh, 
and I saw a, a newspaper sitting on a, uh, on a table there. And on the front page of the newspaper, there was these series of images that have stayed with me ever since. Um, the, these were actually the first images uh, coming out of the Rwandan genocide. Um, and they were photographs of the same lake, Lake Kivu, that I'd just been swimming in a, a, a short time before. But this time, as far as the eye could see, they were, they were covered, the lake was covered with floating bodies. Um, this just devastation of, of human conflict that had, that had taken place. And I think perhaps partly because of my age and partly because of the close um, connection that I'd had. I'd visited family there. I'd been to that exact place. I'd driven through this small country of Rwanda. Um, it, it had a profound impact on me. Uh, all through the rest of my teenage years, I remember thinking deeply about this question. What can people who've been exposed to conflict like that, people who've had these terrible experiences, lost loved ones, seen awful events, um, all of the, the associated horror and trauma and pain that, that goes along with war, how can those people recover? Or, or in fact, can they recover? Can these people um, be healed? Can they move on with their lives? Can they have a meaningful existence? Um, it's a, I would say through no deliberate strategy of my own, it's, it's remarkable that I think, I, I put this down to God, that I'm now working in the, in the job that I am in Uganda, which is just to the north of Rwanda, uh, providing trauma rehabilitation for people who've gone through war and conflict. And some of the people that we work with today have actually been refugees from the 94 Rwandan genocide. Some of them are still living in Uganda to, up to the present day. Um, it's, a, it's a real privilege to do this work. It's something that I, um, I feel very fortunate to be involved with. The, the, the name I mentioned before, the name of the organization, Tutapona, means we will be healed um, in Swahili. It's a, it's a Christian organization that focuses on group therapy, um, pulls together groups of people who've had experiences similar to the, the one I just described, and, and leads them through a process of emotional recovery with a strong emphasis on forgiveness. Um, this organization has been operating there for 10 years, and in that time we've had 40,000 people uh, graduate from our group therapy programs. And it's been my privilege for the last three years to be, to be helping to manage that project. Um, today in, in Eastern and Central Africa, war and conflict is still a massive issue, uh, as I'm sure most of you in this room are aware. In South Sudan, which is just to the north of Uganda, there's a, there's a conflict that's been going since December 2013. Um, and that war is still, is still going. It, it, it's sporadic. It's kind of, they have peace agreements periodically, but, but all too often those are broken. To the west, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, or the DRC, there's also a very long-standing, brutal conflict um, that is estimated to have resulted in five million conflict-related deaths, um, making it, in fact, the biggest war since World War II, uh, even though, unfortunately, we never read about it on our news. As a result, uh, there are currently 1.1 million refugees living in Uganda, within the borders of Uganda. Um, nearly the population of Auckland have walked across from neighboring countries and made Uganda their home because they, they're unable to stay um, in the place they were born. Let me just drill down into that a little bit for you. I, I do apologize. I know some of this content is quite heavy, um, but it's a, it's a reality, and I think it's important for us to engage with this. 
Um, as a base level, these people who are refugees have been forced to flee from their homes. Okay? I know that's, a, that's an easy sentence to say. It's not a particularly easy thing to do from the people that I've, I've spoken to. They have to leave behind land, sometimes land that's been in their family for generations, um, leave behind homes, many of which will be taken by someone else uh, or destroyed or burnt. Uh, jobs and livelihoods are, are also um, left in their, in their home countries. Children are pulled out of school and in the process of fleeing, they, they, they leave their education. Many of these won't resume their education. Um, in the, the places where they're going, there won't be an opportunity for them to carry that on. Their future is becoming extremely uncertain. Then add to that that most of these refugees have left behind loved ones, sometimes lost, separated and in, in fleeing from, from conflict, and sometimes dead, sometimes known to have, to have been killed. Uh, in the settlements where we work, you see family reunification desks um, working on the seemingly impossible task of linking lost children up with parents who may or may not be alive. On top of all this, many of these refugees, these 1.1 million people currently living in Uganda, many of them have witnessed or experienced um, awful acts of violence, including sexual violence. Some carry physical scars, while others have memories or images seared on their brains, things that will stay with them for a very long time. On arrival in Uganda, uh, life in refugee settlements is also not easy. So not only the things they've left behind, but the actual life that they're moving to. The living conditions are cramped and difficult. Uh, most children don't go to school, as I referenced earlier. And there are very few job opportunities. Most of the settlements hold around 100,000 people each, so there's more than 10 of these settlements spread out around the country. And most refugees um, want to get resettled to a, a more developed country where there's better services and, and job opportunities, but globally, that's only 1% of refugees will get that chance to go to America or Canada or New Zealand or Australia. So for the vast majority, they're kind of stuck in this in-between. They can't go home because the war is ongoing and they're very unlikely to be able to go somewhere else. Um, the combined effects of these factors make it very, very difficult for war-affected uh, populations to move ahead with their lives. Quite a terrible picture, isn't it? it? It certainly is impactful, not just to hear about it, but for me to have kind of talked with these people and seen the situations in which they work, in which they live. So a, a foundational motivation for me in, in the work that I'm involved with is the strong belief that war-affected people uh, need targeted mental health support for, for a lot of the reasons I've just talked about. To borrow Jesus' expression from the story I read earlier, I see war-affected people of some, of some of the people in our world today who have fallen into the hands of robbers. Providing mental health support for these people is highly complex and at times heartbreaking. We have mixed results. It's a, it's a difficult field. Um, and there's also a cost. There's a, there's a financial cost for the organizations like Tutapona that are, that are doing this work in these very remote, you know, hard to get to places. Um, but also for the frontline workers, which I should point out is not me. Uh, I'm based in a, in a support role. But for those staff that live and work in refugee settlements, those people really have to engage with brokenness. They hear terrible stories um, and many of them experience what we call vicarious trauma from the experiences that they're exposed to. And yet, and here's the part that is the second aspect, I guess, of my motivation, we also have the privilege, and I mean that sincerely, 
of seeing significant change uh, and transformation taking place, even for people who have been through um, the horror of becoming a refugee as a result of war. Let me explain. When I started doing this work five years ago, I spent a lot of time with trauma rehabilitation groups out in refugee settlements um, and, and talking with program participants to, to find out what their experience was like. They would often talk, after attending a Tutaponas um, trainings that, that we were putting on, the, the experience of freedom from being able to forgive their enemies or the skills that they had learned to manage their trauma symptoms, improve motivation for work or the ability to set goals again. They would talk about re relationships between husbands and wives being restored, uh, relationships between parents and children also improving, decreased substance abuse, um, and, and quite array, an array of other benefits that they would have through being able to process their, their traumatic experiences. The testimonies were extremely encouraging and compelling, um, but it was all anecdotal. And so I was listening to these stories kind of thinking, how can we measure this? What, what, is, what is a way of us being able to, to show that this stuff is really working? So over the past three years, we've prioritized at Tutapona trying to measure the change. Uh, we've gathered thousands of program participant response surveys. We use something called the Screen for Post-Traumatic Stress Symptoms, or the SPTSS. It's not our own measure, but it's something that is used globally to, to look at symptoms of PTSD. Basically, this is a trauma symptom self-report questionnaire that people fill in before and after our intervention. And the, the results kind of support the anecdotal stories that I, that I referenced. On average, the results show a self-reported decrease in trauma symptomology of 54% 54, 54 um, in 2018. And that's over quite a significant sample size. Let me say that another way, because that number may not mean a whole lot. The trauma that these refugees have experienced that can be so debilitating and destructive that leads to insomnia, nightmares, flashbacks, depression, broken relationships, substance abuse, self-harm and suicidal thoughts. The trauma that has stopped these people from setting goals or even thinking about their future that has led to anger, bitterness and unforgiveness and has left populations vulnerable to the, outbreaks, to the outbreak of new violence. All of that has been cut in half in the lives of the 40,000 people who have gone through Tutapona's programs to date. That's something that personally gives me um, massive motivation and, and, and drive. It really is, is very much a privilege to be able to see that going on. Um, I, wanna, I wanna close out my piece with something perhaps a little bit more um, uh, focused in rather than looking at the broad brushstroke. Uh, a, a lady called Joyce Jakudu uh, went through our program last year in 2018. She was a refugee from South Sudan um, and was 40 years old and was living in one of the places where we work. Um, she's one of hundreds of thousands of refugees who have witnessed the senseless death of a loved one as part of the training that rebel soldiers receive. She says this, we were eating one day in the evening and we heard gunshots. Shortly after that, the rebels attacked our home and killed seven people for sport, and then they took off. One of those killed was my child. Joyce, along with those who remained in her family, were able to escape over the border to Uganda and were brought to Pagirinya refugee settlement to start their new life. Despite the assistance received from humanitarian organizations in the area, 
Joyce was unable to recover from what she had experienced in her home. Plagued with nightmares and insomnia, her family and livelihood suffered greatly, and Joyce could neither help her nor her family. Ever since I arrived at that settlement in Pagirinha, life has never been the same. I began to feel the pain a lot about my child, and this affected my sleep in the night. I could hardly do anything productive. I could not even eat because of overthinking about my child. This has been the most painful moment in my life. When Tutapona brought the Empower program to our block, I took the interest to attend. All the sessions taught which were a true reflection of my life. I learned a lot from the program. I learned to deal with my negative thoughts and to let go of my past hurts, anger and bitterness. I am now much better than before. One of the greatest benefits to Joyce has been her newfound ability to forgive those who killed her child. This is especially of great importance in the long term if she and her family return to their home in South Sudan, where retribution or revenge is considered to be a cultural norm. Unfortunately, the story of Joyce is not a one-off. Uh, it's extremely common. We hear things like her story repeated thousands and thousands of times over. Um, and yet, as Joyce said, and I hope you picked this up, she said, um, I learned to deal with my past hurts, anger, and bitterness. Isn't that absolutely mind-blowing? That this woman would have the courage to forgive someone who had shot her child for sport. When I try to engage with that and apply that to my own context, my mind balks. I don't like to go too close to that. And yet, through the power of God, this lady has been able to experience real healing, peace, and restoration, despite that kind of pain. At Tutapona, this is the last thing I'll say before I hand across to, to Helen, we believe that God is absolutely central uh, to the healing and restoration work that takes place. Our foundational verses come from Isaiah 61. And I can say with real confidence that we've seen God bestow on war-affected refugees in Uganda that we have the privilege of working with a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. You'll still hear more from him, don't worry. It's me, then him, and then that's it, right? Yeah. <laughs> so work-wise, um, I do humanitarian photography and storytelling. I have the immense privilege of working alongside incredible organizations all over the world. Um, in New Zealand, I work a lot with Tear Fund and World Vision here. I also work for Compassion, USAID, the International Justice Mission, Medical Teams International. I think I've shot for about 35 different um, uh, charities and nonprofits. Um, and my job is really to help bring their work to life uh, in living color with photos and stories. Since I was last here, I've been everywhere from Iraq to Congo. I've boarded probably about 120 flights and I've been covering everything from, um, <clears throat> excuse me, famine uh, to the refugee crisis to post-war environments, child sponsorship and micro-enterprise. And I can tell you that I am more passionate about what I do for a job than ever before. And I'm deeply grateful to be one of the storytellers for the kingdom. 
You know, I see a lot of hard things in my job, witness some of the very worst that humanity has to offer. But I also get to see the hand of God moving across the earth as his work and heart is accomplished through the organizations whose work I'm capturing. In February, I'll be speaking at a conference in the States on photojournalism. In March, I'm in Tanzania. April is Honduras. And May, I'll be back here on a nationwide photography tour. So if you'd like to come behind the lens with me and uh, dive into some of the incredible stories and meet some amazing people through them, I'll be sure to share those details with New Hope Community Church. I'm doing one night in Auckland. But finally, I just wanted to really encourage anyone in the room that is a child sponsor through Tear Funds. You know, um, I hear that this church has got quite a few child sponsors in here and having worked for them both in-house and as a contractor for over seven years. Oh, we can flick to the next slides. Um, yeah, actually, let's just pause for a second. I just uh, have a couple photos to show you. This was in Senegal with World Vision and a um, Mothers and Babies Health Clinic. And the next one... Uh, yeah, also in Senegal. This is, yeah, a little girl in one of the reading clubs um, that World Vision is working in. So she's learning, well, she's not learning right there, but everyone else around her <laughs> is learning about sto- uh, reading. And Yep. Yeah, we can keep going. This is in Ghana. I was doing a story on slavery. Um, Ghana is the, has a lake called Lake Volta. It's the largest man-made lake in the world. And, uh, but it's built, you know, the, the success of the fishing industry there is really built off the backs of child labor. So children as young as four are being, um, yeah, seconded for their little hands to untie nets and to go into the water. And uh, they work really hard on those lakes often. I met a boy who worked for three years and got paid 50 US dollars um, to give you an indication and they're really held in deep bondage there Um, yep next one here's some more of those boys the fishing boys of Lake Volta this is an interesting one this was shot um, in uh, kind of just on the outskirts of of Syria and in Mosul, oh, sorry, yeah, in Mosul. Um, and I was in a medical clinic uh, that had been completely ransacked by ISIS. So if you look in the pharmacy, you see all the kind of uh, things that they had, like the drugs they had grabbed were all lying on the floor. And um, this clinic was reopening thanks to the work of an organization called MedAir. And so they were trying to see people that were trying to move back to the area. Um, and here's a little girl coming with her mum to get um, some medicine and to see a doctor. Uh, yeah, that was pretty scary. When I was shooting this, we had to stay within 200 meters of the vehicle, and we had to have—I had to have a chemical gas weapons mask on me at all times. Yep. Next slide. This is shot for Tutapona in Iraq. Uh, so Tutapona did some incredible work in Uganda, but the place that. Um, one of the places that's really come to life for me was going to Iraq. This woman here, um, she she lost her child um, in the fighting when it came to her town in a, in a place called Sinja. And when she was there, um, after all of it happened, she kind of went a bit mad. And so her husband left her with her remaining four children. And she hasn't seen them again since. And he returned her to her parents and he won't let her see them because she had like a bit of a psychosis after the event. And that's very unusual in a place like that. There's not a lot of understanding for that behavior. So, um, yeah, that was so awful. So Tutapon has been working with her. Next one. 
This is shot on the border of South Sudan and Uganda. As refugees come across the border, they are given polio drops by doctors as soon as they arrive um, and uh, amongst other medications. Uh, but yeah, this is just a sweet little baby that caught my eye. Oh, these boys, I'll never forget this little photo. So in January of 2018, I was invited by an organization to go into Congo and come on the buses with refugees as they cross from Congo into Uganda and follow the entire process of what happens for them. And these little boys caught my eye. I was like, where is their parents? Why are they all in matching clothing? What's going on? And I found out that they had been at school when the war had broken out and they had gone home to try and find their mum and Norm was home and because the shooting was going on they just came together as a group of um, four little boys and they had come to Uganda by themselves and they have no idea where their family were so of course I'm and they're registering this is what they were doing is registering to become refugees so of course I was like well what's going to happen after they finish registering where are they going to go so shortly after I took this photo I um, made sure with uh, UNICEF that there was going to be a, a grandmother, um, she was like an older lady, had volunteered to kind of foster them as emergency foster care while the process to trace for their family goes on. But sadly, unaccompanied children is really common in refugee camps. And um, yeah, I'm not sure what's happened to them now. Uh, this is shot for USAID. Um, the government of the US gives a lot of money into Uganda. And this is a mum who's just given birth to a precious little baby um, just two hours, two hours previous. Um, yeah. So we'll just go back to that previous slide for a second. Um, finally, I wanted to encourage anyone in the room that is a child sponsored through TFUND. Having worked for them both in-house and as a contractor for over seven years, I can tell you that I have seen their work um, firsthand and it is something quite remarkable. As you can probably imagine, I get to see a lot of different projects in a range of different contexts and countries. Um, but my favorite ones to shoot and visit are always their child sponsorship projects. If you sponsor a child in here through Tear Fund Compassion today, I can tell you that your child is known, they are loved, and they are protected. I can tell you that they are going to school that they are getting enough food and medical care when they need it. And they're also getting to learn about Jesus through their local church. And um, there's about 2 million sponsored kids with Tear Fun and Compassion. And New Hope Community Church is actually planning a trip. Um, I'm not sure if you know this or not, but I'm pretty sure you've been told that they're planning a trip to Uganda this uh, July. And one of the things I'm most excited about showing people that will come is the chance to see a Tear Fund Compassion Project live in action. You'll walk into a room with a couple hundred children. You'll be able to play with them, learn some songs, help serve them food, have a traditional Ugandan meal, and possibly even share some teaching with them. Speaking of that trip, you'll also be able to see a refugee settlement filled with tens of thousands of people and observe Tutapona's group trauma rehabilitation training also in action. And that would be a real privilege to see that. In addition, you'll do a village visit to Watoto. I don't know if you've heard of Watoto, but they often bring choirs out to New Zealand and they come and share. Um, so we're going to go out to um, a Watoto village. We're going to get to see their baby's home, their school, their village, and their medical clinics 
as well. We'll see that all in full operation and close out your trip by going on a breathtaking African safari uh, to see giraffes and elephants and many other animals in their natural environment. And of course, our family will have you over to our house uh, for a barbecue and we'll also take you to our favorite pool for some warm sunshine in the middle of your freezing cold winter. So if you are interested in hearing more about our proposed trip, or if you have any questions, Tim and I are going to be upstairs at 11.15, and we'd be more than happy to chat about that. I'm just going to hand back to Tim for the final part. All right. Just as we wrap up, guys, I, I wanted to uh, link back to what I, what I shared at the beginning and just, to, I guess, reflect and say, isn't, isn't God so unbelievably creative um, that Helen and I have this privilege to be able to do the work that we're involved with. As, as you can probably tell, we are wired very differently. We have different personalities and different skills and gifts. Um, and yet it's been amazing seeing how God's kind of directed us towards things that he wants us to be doing with our time, we believe. Um, we want to be clear that we often fail um, to show love to our neighbors, to people who are around us. But it's something that we've sort of tried to be quite intentional about as we, as we think about what we might want to do with our time and our money and our skills. Um, we don't believe, Helen and I, that, that everyone is called in the same direction as us, that might be called to adopt or called to be a, a humanitarian photographer or to work with trauma-affected refugees. Um, but we do believe that as followers of Jesus, we need to take seriously the message um, of Jesus from this parable that I shared, that it is up to us to, to notice people around us, to not walk past those who are lying on the side of the road, um, and to think of creative ways, to think of things that we can do to love our neighbors, wherever that may be, and, and whoever those people are that God places in our, in our path. Um, so that's, that's really the, the kind of final message that we wanted to leave you with this morning as you, as you launch into 2019. Can I pray to finish? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for um, the powerful words of Jesus that we that we got to read this morning um, and your call for us to engage, even to engage with some complex and sometimes heartbreaking situations. But Lord, thank you for being there with us, for giving us the, the skills and the energy and the courage to get involved. We pray that for each of us in this room today as we go into this new year, Lord, you would make it clear who it is we're supposed to show your love to. Pray this in your name. Amen.